right. Well, it's good to be here. Open up God's Word with you this morning. Today is the start of our purity series as a church. I want to just take a minute to thank the Lord that we belong to a church that cares about our hearts and how they appear before the Lord. And so it's a privilege to open up God's, God's Word with you this morning and to talk about this topic. I have it right here, so it can not be static. Good? Okay. All right. I'll speak loud. I'll try. Okay. Well, this morning, as you can see from your handouts, I hope everyone has one. You don't have a handout? Okay. We'll get you one. Matthew 5, as you can see. So this past couple weeks, I've been praying through this text, and I have to admit, it's been very difficult to do. I uh, heard a preacher say that, quoting or, or preaching on Hebrews 4.12, that if the word is indeed a sword, and your hearers aren't pierced, have you preached the word? So it is my prayer this morning that the word of God would indeed perform open heart surgery on you this morning. That the blade would come alive, that it would actively pierce your hearts. That the edge would slice off any remaining desires for the flesh. And that the intentions of your hearts would only be holiness and purity. Remember that we as shepherds, over this next three weeks, we love you all. I love you all, but I am coming after you. One day I will have to give an account to God for this morning. And because of that, and because of those that teach will be judged with greater strictness, I must preach the word as faithfully as I can this morning. So now that the tone is set, if you profess to be a Christian, what are you holding on to? If you profess to be a Christian, what are you holding on to? Spiritually, what is filling your minds and your hearts from pursuing purity and holiness? Some of you would say that you are following Christ, yet you have given up nothing for him. Some of you would say that you're following Christ, yet you've only given up external sins. Some of you would say that you're following Christ, and you have given up many sins in your heart, yet there's still that one sin that you are choosing to hold on to. If any of these describe you, then friend, let me ask you this. Are you truly following Christ? Because Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me, right? You see, that's the Christian life, friends. 
a life that indeed has liberty and freedom, that is purchased in Christ, yet the Christian chooses self-denial. Not sin. Because our Redeemer emptied himself, so we are to empty ourselves. John Calvin said our first step should be to take leave of ourselves and to apply all of the powers to the service of the Lord. The service of the Lord does not include implicit, does not only include implicit obedience, but also a willingness to put aside our sinful desires and to surrender completely to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Does that frighten you? To completely empty yourself of yourself. To lay it all out for Christ. To live a life of self-denial. To lay down your will, your freedom, your rights in order that Christ would receive all the glory. It shouldn't. As a new under-shepherd of the great shepherd, my prayer is that our time together this morning will be received by you as a wake-up call and a warning that you will feel God's rod and staff and that they will comfort you. That you will understand that if you choose to hold on to sin in your life and not let it go, you will go to hell. You will be at the great wedding feast without a wedding garment and thrown to where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You will be found to be a terror among the weak. You will be pulled up and burned. You'll be found to be a goat and you'll be separated from the sheep and left. You say, wait a minute. I'm a Calvinist. I believe in perseverance of the saints. I believe in eternal security. Me too. But friends, listen closely. If you are trying to justify willingly holding on to habitual sin and sinful desires by testing God's doctrine of eternal security, you're falling into a deadly trap. A deadly trap set by the devil himself. That's exactly what the devil does in Matthew 4. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan himself, and he rebukes the devil in Matthew 4, 7, quoting Deuteronomy 6, 16. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now to let off the gas a little here. We are indeed being sanctified by the Holy Spirit on our way to glory. We will never be perfect here in these bodies. So how do we reconcile this? How can we be pure if we can't be? We must choose to fight against sin. We must choose not to indulge in the desires of the flesh. You see, that is the key, the choice to fight our sin or hold on to our sin. So what's it going to be for you? What are you going to hold on to? Will you take hold of eternal life? Will you take hold of Christ? Or will you take hold of eternal death? That's what's at stake. Listen to Paul, 1 Timothy 6.12. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And in 2 Timothy 4.7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Thomas Watson said, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. So this morning, I pray that you would taste the bitterness of sin.
and the sweetness of your Savior. Is everyone here in a grace group? Yeah? Anyone not in a grace group? Yeah? Okay. Okay. Yeah. We can remedy that. Okay. Now some of grace groups, they do book studies, right? Just pray or sermon reviews. So this morning, we're going to do a sermon review. We'll be reviewing this person's first recorded sermon. Not the whole thing, but a, the specific part of it that details with the sin of adultery. The sermon we'll be reviewing, of course, the Sermon on the Mount, specifically Matthew 5, 27 to 30. That will be our text this morning. We're going to simply review this part of the sermon and see how God would have us to uh, apply it to our lives in our pursuit of purity as individuals and as a church. So now that the tone is set, let's read the text together. I'll pray for help and then we'll review this stunning sermon together. I'll actually be starting in verse 17 to verse 30. Matthew 5, 17 to 30. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, Tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let's pray. Father, these are striking words here in this in this text Lord we need your help this morning Father you have saved us you have given us new hearts and yet because we are in these bodies of flesh everything we touch corrupts so help us now dear spirit wash us cleanse us help us to understand 
these words from our Savior. That sin is real, that death is real, and that judgment is coming. Help us to be found pure when that day comes. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Matthew 5, 27 to 30, we will review how Jesus exposits the seventh commandment so that you will grasp your urgent need for purity. Now, verse 27, it says, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. The first step in any biblical hermeneutic or exegetical analysis is to make observations of the text. This is accomplished mainly by asking a lot of questions. One commentator said, if biblical hermeneutics can be compared to panning for gold in a river, then the observation phase is the physical act of pulling up every rock, pebble, and particulate matter the prospector can catch in a sifter. So first, as we observe this text with Jesus here, who is Jesus talking to? This call for purity happens at the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5.1 and Matthew 8.1, they book into this great sermon and identify who's in attendance. Matthew 5.1, Matthew records seeing the crowds. He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And in Matthew 8.1, the other book end, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. So who are in the crowds? That's who's there. In Matthew 4, 23-25, they tell us. The crowds are described like this. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him. Here's the crowd. All the sick those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. People from the entire region that surrounds the Sea of Galilee. If you look on a map, Sea of Galilee, it's the entire surrounding region. It's like if we gathered people here uh, from Oklahoma, Colorado, Nebraska, Missouri, and we all gathered to a hill at Cheney Lake. Be like that. A little smaller. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus quotes the seventh commandment here, right after he quoted and explained the sixth. He says, you have been taught this. This has been preached to you. You have heard this. First recorded in Exodus 20.14 and Deuteronomy 5.18. Israel indeed heard this from Moses. It's been passed down through generations. And Moses heard it from God. And then Jesus proceeds to clarify God's intended meaning. See, the rabbis in that day agreed, right, that adultery was against the law. They believed that it involves stealing another man's wife. Simple. Straightforward. So simple, in fact, that adultery was easily used to punish people by death. Leviticus uh, 2010, Deuteronomy 22, 22. 
and is punishable by death in order to purge the evil from Israel. In John's Gospel, the recorded story of the woman caught in adultery, uh, it reveals that death was still authorized for the sin of adultery. John 7, 53-811. This sin in your life will also lead to death, an eternal death in hell. And I imagine the crowds and Jews and Gentiles in the mix, the Jews had memorized and were taught the Ten Commandments from childhood. They knew what Jesus was talking about. And the Gentiles, they had heard these commands from the Jews. You see, they watched them, they observed them, the Gentiles. They saw their example. See, the Jews, they looked different, right? They ate differently. They spoke differently. Yet one thing they had in common was their need for healing, their desire for sin, and their curiosity of this Nazarene named Jesus. Now that Jesus had observed that the crowd had heard about the seventh commandment, he proceeds to apply the next biblical hermeneutic step, authorial intent. In verse 28, he says, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the next step here is finding the authorial intent of the text. What is the author's intended meaning for the audience he is writing to? The concept here of authorial intent causes sayings like, well, for me, this means, or to me, I think this means, doesn't matter what we think, matters what God wrote and what God said. And so, instead, grasping authorial intent causes the reader to ask, what does God desire for the intended audience to understand and when they received the original text? So by using a literal, historical, and grammatical hermeneutic, the author's intended meaning is brought from darkness to light. And here, Jesus unveils the true meaning behind the seventh commandment. See, the crowds thought that God's meaning behind the seventh commandment was purely external. That only the physical act of adultery was the sin and the violation of the law. But Jesus exposits or exposes what God's intended meaning of this command is. He begins by saying, but I say to you. Can you imagine? The crowd says, wait a second. Yeah, we heard it. We heard it from our rabbis and our teachers. And they, they're quoting Moses, who heard it from God. Let's see. Heard it from God. They received it on these stone tablets. And you're saying, but I say to you? Can you imagine that? Who is this? We've heard it said, but you say? Now, Jesus isn't contradicting the seventh commandment. He is simply um, saying, but I say to you, let me explain what I, God, truly mean when I condemn adultery. Jesus is declaring here that he is God. This is his commandment. It's like when my wife tells my kids it's bedtime. Now, I don't come up after her and say, but I say to you, <laughs> Stay up till midnight and eat ice cream, right? I'd be in big trouble. But that would be contrary 
right? What I'd actually say is, your mom said it's bedtime, but I say to you, if I hear you playing around up there, it's going to be problems, right? It's a clarification. It's to communicate the true meaning behind what, what was commanded, the intent of it. So how important is it that we listen to Jesus then? Very important. Because God commands it. In his baptism and at the transfiguration, God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to the present and the active. We are always to be listening to Jesus. And so let's look at what Jesus says. That everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent with, has already committed adultery with her. Everyone. All y'all. The sense applies specifically here to the marriage relationship, but we understand, and so did Jesus' listeners on the mount, that men and women both have sinful desires in their hearts. Would you agree with that? When we read this in the 21st century, we see, yeah, I better not look lustfully, right? If I do, I'll say I'm sorry. That's a sin, okay, I get it. No big deal. I'll just look away. But for the Jews in attendance, this would have taken their breath away. The sense of looking with lustful intent would have reminded some of them of Genesis 3.6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Do you see this now? The delight to the eyes is everyone who looks at a woman. The tree was desired is literally the lustful intent. And then what happens? In a moment of impulsive desire, she took and ate, and death entered the world. For some of the Jews in attendance, the more studied Jews... Jesus' words would have been a depressing reminder of Israel's spiritual adultery against Yahweh. From captivity, worshiping Egyptian gods, to the golden calf, to the idol worship of Baal, Nashroth, and ancient Canaan and Phoenicia, Israel's heart constantly turned away from God and fell into spiritual adultery and spiritual corruption. In Hosea 5, 3, 6, the Lord says, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me for now. O oh, Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah shall also stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. Do you ever think about that, Christian? That the Lord could withdraw from them? That means he could withdraw from you. And in Jeremiah chapter 2, all the way to chapter 3, verse 5, God is like a husband 
to his people. He remembers the delight of his young love when he rescued them from Egypt, married her in the wilderness and brought her home to a fertile land. But now Israel and Judah have behaved like prostitutes. They committed spiritual adultery by worshiping other gods. And in that text, Jeremiah can't believe what he sees. God's people reject him for what? Lust. Lust after fertility gods and goddesses, erecting phallic poles on hilltops and holding orgies under trees. In Jeremiah 2.20, the Lord says, you've bowed down like a whore. In all this, the people still call on God as their father and friend, but their hearts are hard and their eyes are cold and their actions deny their words. And so Paul tells us how we're to use Israel as an example. We're to use Israel's sins against God to help us. In 1 Corinthians 10, 6, he writes, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. The same word for desire that Paul uses here is the same word used in Matthew 5, 28. So let me ask you this. Are your hearts hard and your eyes cold towards God? Do your actions deny your words of faith? I came across some reasons as to why Israel committed adultery against Yahweh. And so as I list these reasons, I want you to think about your own heart. And if there be lust in it, I want you to think of these are reasons for that. That in your fight for purity, if you are fighting, are these reasons that you continually fail. Let's take a look. His name is Doug Stewart, and he suggests nine reasons idolatry was attractive to the Israelites and in the cultures of the ancient Near East. First reason that Israel committed spiritual adultery against Yahweh it was guaranteed. If you do the right incantation and you get the right results, just say the right words and the gods show up. Who wouldn't want that? Sinful self-pleasure is guaranteed temporarily. <clears throat> yeah, but standing before the throne of God is also guaranteed. Number two, it was selfish. In the ancient world, the gods, though they were powerful, needed humans to feed them. So sacrifices were brought to the gods because they were hungry. Consequently, you can get what you want from the gods simply by bringing them sacrifices that they need. In the same way, do you feed your sin to get what you need? Number three, it was easy. Sure, you need to show up, offer a sacrifice, but ancient religion demanded little in the way of ethical standards or personal sacrifice. To be a good Canaanite, you didn't have to follow an elaborate list of moral code. You just had to put the meat on the altar. And that was the mistake that Israel fell into time after time after time. They thought they could live and worship any way they wished, so long as they kept up with the religious rituals. Is it easy to fall into sin? Yeah, you bet. Jesus even says, Matthew seven fourteen, For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those are few 
those and those who find it are few. The way to death, easy. The way to life, hard. You have to choose. It was convenient. There were religious franchises all over the place. That's why Israel got into trouble with the high places. They thought they could take care of their ritual duties just like everyone else. Israel was supposed to be unique, set apart. However, in that, there was only one place to go, right? First, they're supposed to be in the tabernacle, later in the temple. But this worshiping false idols was convenient. They didn't have to go there. Again, easy, accessible, no sacrifice required. Number five, it was normal. The only people who did not do religion like this in the ancient Near East were the Israelites. For everyone else, though, they had gods with different names, different places, and religion was done the same way. In our society, pornography was normal. The sexualization of everything is normal. <clears throat> if your life looks normal to the world, you're doing something wrong. God's call is to holiness, to be set apart, abnormal, if you will. It was indulgent. Meat was a relative rarity in the ancient world. Not everyone had herds that they could sacrifice, so meat was often eaten only as part of a ritual worship. You would offer your meal, and in some cases you drink to the God, and then enjoy your feast. And as a result, worship took a party atmosphere on. It was filled with gluttony and drunkenness and debauchery. Number nine, or number eight, it was erotic. During ritual worship, it was believed that if worshipers took the parts of Baal and Ashereth, for example, and had sex, it would stimulate the deities in heaven. And when the gods and goddesses had sex, it meant procreation, which meant earthly blessings like fertility, rain, health, and good harvest. This is why prostitution became common at religious sites, and why God rebuked Israel for adopting the same practice with both heterosexual and homosexual temple prostitutes. Oh, that God would rebuke us. So this whole system of idolatry, guaranteed, selfish, easy, Convenient, normal, pleasing, indulgent, erotic. The same allure of idolatry is not far removed from us. As we went down that list together, did any of those make sense? They sound familiar to you? That voice that urges you to satisfy selfishly your fleshly desires in your heart. In your heart, Jesus continues... Whoever looks with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is indeed issuing a warning in our text that the sin of adultery is more than the physical sinful encounter that breaks the marriage covenant. But it also includes the sinful desires of the heart. But it's a little more than that, actually. Jesus is, is exhorting the crowd. He is spurring them on. And he is exhorting you spurring you on. He is saying, stop looking down like a vulture standing over a dead corpse. 
a dead carcass with only lustful hunger in your heart and turn your gaze up to heaven. There's bread of life there to satisfy you. In Acts 7, Stephen is about to be stoned to death. Listen to this. In Acts 7, 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 5, 8, just a few minutes before our text. He says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Where is your gaze turned to? Pornography or your Bible? Your screen or your Savior? Are you gazing into the heart of your soul, begging the Holy Spirit to let you see the glory of God? Or have you shut the eyes of your heart and allowed the steady spin of our planet to put you to sleep? If so, then wake up. For you don't know the time or the hour when the Master is returning. And He is coming. Will you be ready? Will you be awake? Solomon offers wisdom about the adulterous heart in Proverbs 6.25. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. John Calvin, speaking about the heart, says, The gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. It cannot be grasped by memory and reason only, but is fully understood when it possesses the whole soul, and penetrates in the inner recesses of the heart. But he also said that the human heart is an idol factor. J.C. Ryle says this about authentic Christianity. He says, You may know the truth, and assent to the truth, and believe the truth, and yet be wrong in God's sight. It is not enough that it is on your lips. You may say amen to public prayer in church and yet have nothing more than an outward religion. It is not enough that it is in your feelings. You may weep under preaching one day and be lifted to the third heaven by joyous excitement another day and yet be dead to God. Your religion, if it is authentic and given by the Holy Spirit, must be in your heart. And this is what Jesus has just made clear to his listeners. Your outward keeping of the law is nothing. You must keep it in your heart. So, we looked at how Jesus made observations of the seventh commandment. And we looked at how he explained what his intent was for the sin of adultery. That it's not physical only. But it is the sinful desire in your heart that makes you guilty of committing this violation of the law. And now we move on to the last biblical hermeneutic principle. And that is to study the implications and significance and sometimes can be known as the application phase of study. And in our text, Jesus makes some severe applications here. Verse 29 and 30, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Verse 30, 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus reiterates this same solution to fighting temptation of sin in Matthew 18. He says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. Matthew 18, 7-9. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the internal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. And although I believe it would do us good to take these commands literally as possible, but Jesus is using these illustrations of tearing out the eyes and cutting off hands and feet, not as what you need to do with your bodies, but what you must do to the root causes of your sins. If these words were taken out of context, the church would be a disturbing place to be in. In fact, in the early church, a theologian named Origen was said to have self-castrated himself in front of a nun because of what he read in Matthew 19, 12. For there are eunuchs who have been so for from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And that was not a command by Jesus. That was a description, not a prescription. Okay? If you pluck out your right eye, you can still sin with your left one, right? You cut off your right hand, you still sin with your left one, right? So what's Jesus saying? He's saying you must violently, savagely, vigorously, painfully remove anything in your life that is a temptation or a source of sin that is keeping you from God. Take the axe and let the axe do what axes do and get to work. You say you love Jesus. Prove it. Kill your sin. Examine yourself. If your heart is right with God and in the sight of God, you have no cause to flinch from examination. If you still have sin in your heart, the sooner you kill it, the better. If you are truly saved, you've been given a new heart by God. You must not handle it carelessly, but you must guard it with intense faithfulness. Proverbs 4.23 Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And so let's examine some ways to perform spiritual surgery on the sins in our hearts. There are many ways. I only have three here. First one is to repent. Repent. Why did God purge the earth with a flood in the days of Noah? Not simply because of their actions, right? In Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We see this in how God prescribes repentance, the way he wants to restore us from sin. He speaks just as clearly to sin's deep roots in our hearts. 
David says in Psalm 51, 16 through 17, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And the prophet Joel says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Joel 2, 12-13. Cry out to God for help in your repentance. In Psalm 51, 10, David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew within me the right spirit. When you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The other way to fight against this is time. Thinking about how you spend your time. Jonathan Edwards said this about how he thought about the preciousness of time. He thought about the brevity of life, the certainty of death, and the length of eternity. So what are you using your time for? Okay? So we have, what, eight hours we sleep? Some of us? Eight hours we work, right? What are you doing with the other eight? Usually that's the time when we input things into our minds. So what are we inputting into our minds throughout the day? Let's look. TV, movies, social media, cell phones. What ungodly and unhelpful ideas are you continuously being using to pour into your brain throughout the day? As you think about your time, ask yourself, do you spend a lot of time with people of the opposite sex that are not your spouse? Do you spend time alone with them? That's something to consider, even if being alone with that person is part of your job. What about boredom? Do you have lots of free time or time alone with yourself where you can be idle or lazy? Even where you go can be a problem. Is going to the gym a problem? Walmart, grocery store, that restaurant where the waitress or waiter gives you an extra smile for a tip? Are you careful with your eyes when you're out in public? What about your relationships? Do you have any friends who make this fight for purity really hard for you? Maybe you should consider new friends. Take your precious time to examine your life and see what you're putting into your mind and then what comes out of your heart. Look for patterns. What surrounds the times in your life when temptations are the strongest? Are these things that you need to get rid of for the sake of your eternal soul? Eternal soul. And the last one here. Slice, slice. You see here in our text, Jesus says, cut it off. Will you amputate, not your hand, but your phone from your hand for Christ? Who are you willing to depart from in your life in order that you might arrive to Jesus as a pure virgin? 2 Corinthians 11.2 what are you holding on to that you're afraid of letting go of in order to grasp hold of Christ's loving arms? 
How will you defend yourself at the judgment after being found with the truth in your mind yet lies in your heart? When will you leave all behind for Christ? In Matthew 19, 27, Peter said, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children's or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. What are you prepared to give up for the sake of Christ? I pray that it is everything. Are you praying for more stuff or are you praying for God to strip you from everything so that you might love him? This means you may have to say no to someone. You may have to stand up for the gospel in the face of hostility. You may have to stand up for those who are weaker in the faith. You may have to defend the defenseless. Not only against the world, but even your own heart and mind. You have to fight. You may have to choose the path that Jesus took, the path of suffering. The path, I'm afraid, is too hard for some of us. You quote Galatians 2.20 at your baptism, but what, do you know what this truly means? That you've been crucified with Christ. It means that you have become like Christ. And what does it mean to become like Christ? You must empty yourself. You must humble yourself. You must become the joke of the world a stumbling block for the religious. You must be willing to be ridiculed and mocked, spit on, rejected, deserted, and crucified, and dead, and buried. That's what it means to be a Christian. To be Christ's bride, you give up yourself because Jesus gave himself up for you. So that you will join him in eternal life. John 12, 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Serve Christ with your whole life, always looking forward to heaven. And when your fight for purity is over, you will receive your reward. One last application. There's a story of a tribe of Native Americans who had a unique practice for training young braves. On the night of the boy's 13th birthday, he was placed in a dense forest to spend the entire night alone. Until then, he had never been away from the security of his family and tribe. But on this night, he was blindfolded and taken miles away. And when he took off the blindfold, he was in the middle of thick woods by himself all night long. Every time a twig snapped, he visualized a wild, a wild animal ready to pounce. Every time an animal howled, he imagined a wolf leaping out of the darkness. Every time the wind blew, he wondered what more sinister sound it masked. No doubt it was a terrifying night for many. After what seemed like an eternity, the first rays of sunlight entered the interior of the forest. And looking around, the boy saw flowers, trees, the outline of the path. 
Then, to his utter astonishment, he beheld the figure of a man standing just a few feet away, armed with a bow and arrow. It was the boy's father. He had been there all night, watching over him. In the same way, you may feel like this fight for purity is too hard. But you're not alone. God is ever-present. Christ is ever-present. The Holy Spirit is in you, indwelling, ready to help you, watching over you. The night may seem like it will never end, but friend, if the Lord tarries, tomorrow the sun will come. Therefore endure, press on. Your Heavenly Father is watching over you, ready to help. Let's pray. Father, help us. We are so weak and helpless here. Father, indwell all of us with your spirit. Give us strength to endure and to press on for the sake of Christ. Not only because you promise such beautiful things in all of eternity, Lord, but that we would just love you through our Savior, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask. Help us to not just go through the motions. Help us to know that your Son deserves a pure bride. And this bride must be holy. This bride must be found guiltless and blameless and spotless. Father, thank you for a church that cares about that that cares about each and every single one of us, that prays for us, that encourages us, that pushes us on. We think this time here is long, Lord, but it's so short. Father, we pray that Jesus would come quickly, but if not, help us to be ready. Help us to tell others and help us to love one another. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.